Be seated. Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8. Matthew, chapter 8, is where I would like to direct your attention this morning. I'm going to read from verses 28 through chapter 9, verse 13. So Matthew, chapter 8, is uh, where we will begin with the scriptures um, today. Matthew 8, 28. You follow along in God's word as I read, please. When he arrived at the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the other side of the Sea of Galilee, in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Jesus did so. He stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the wealthy, sorry, It is not the healthy, there's a difference. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I've learned a couple of important lessons in my visits to the United States Mint in Philadelphia. Maybe you've been there. I've walked through the place a couple of times. One of the things I've learned is that though they make 46,800 coins per minute at the Mint in Philadelphia, they do not give away free samples. You can go to the Hers Potato Chip Factory in Nottingham, and they will give you fresh off the line hot potato chips to try. They will not give you at the U.S. Mint hot nickels. It's very disappointing. The other thing that I have learned at the tour of the U.S. Mint is though that technology has dramatically increased the speed and the precision with which coins are made, the process really hasn't changed that much in the thousands of years that human beings have made coins. You take a die, a hard die, and you press it into a piece of metal, and that's how you make coins. 
At the mint, they start with long sheets of metal, and they cut uh, holes, uh, cut blanks, uh, uh, round pieces that are the size of quarters and nickels and dimes and pennies. And, uh, then they take those blanks, they run them through a 1,400-degree oven to soften them. They wash them, they dry them, and then they put them in the press where two, two dyes come and hit them with between 35 and 100 tons of force and, and make the, the coins. For this process to work, you have to have a hard dye and a soft blank. In this passage that we have here, we see the force of the Lord Jesus on display. Here he comes with all his might, his might over demons and his might over sin and his might over paralysis and his might over the self-righteous people who surrounded him. And the question that we come to as readers as we read this passage is, in the face of Jesus' might, how malleable are you? How tender to, are you to the impression of the Lord Jesus? There's not a person alive whose life would not be improved by yielding to Christ's leadership. And as followers of Jesus, we come to this text and we just shape us, mold us, help us to bear in, in increasing measure the full image of the Lord Jesus. Jesus is mighty. How malleable are you? Four men whose lives were stamped by the Lord Jesus. Two demon-possessed men, one paralytic, and one man named Matthew who wrote this book and um, was ostensibly healthy until Jesus called him very sick. I want to walk through this passage, and there's two things that I want you to see in each of these scenes that we're going to consider. We're going to talk about Jesus' might, and then we're going to talk about your malleability. And we learn about malleability and what it looks like in part by examining the response of Jesus' critics, the response that they had to him. They were not impressed with his might. And I think that you should be, Matthew's intention is that you should be, and you should learn by their negative example. Uh, what, what does malleability look like? How do you recognize it in your life? How, what keeps you from being a, a sort of malleable person before the Lord Jesus? Well, let's start, shall we? Let's talk about these first, these two demon-possessed men. I have a lot of questions about this story. Now, you might have some of the same questions I do. First of all, I have questions about this whole demon possession thing uh, in the first place. Uh, Craig Blomberg is a, an excellent scholar of the Gospels, and he says that we should use the term demonization. Demonization is a better translation of, of the original language here. And he says demonization is the indwelling of unseen evil spirits in a way that prevents an individual from fully controlling his or her own actions. It's a fine definition. It works. But you come to this story and you think to yourself, you might be tempted to think, okay, this, these, this is a pre-scientific age in which this event happened. We know a lot more than they did about uh, how the mind works and we know the difference between mental illness and demon possession, and there are some people who think that Jesus is just accommodating himself to the pre-scientific age in pretending that, that unseen evil spirits actually exist. I mean, how can we, who live in the 21st century and have science, how can we believe in this 
this event, except, except Jesus, he, he doesn't seem like he's just pretending or he's just trying to accommodate himself. He's, he's certainly not constrained by the limits of the scientific knowledge of his day. In fact, this passage teaches us, if anything, he is not limited by anything. He knows, and the gospel takes these, these accounts seriously. Why is it, uh, a question, why it, there's nothing really in the Old Testament about demon possession and uh, demons, and there's very little in Paul's letters why do these accounts seem to predominate in the Gospels? Leon Morris is an Australian, he passed away a few years ago, an Australian a Bible scholar. He says that, that the demons proliferate or, or are present in the Gospels here because Jesus, the Son of God, has invaded their territory. Um, if you see a field, a grassy field that might look very placid, very calm, but if you walk across it, you will suddenly see bugs jumping, jumping, jumping. And here's the Lord Jesus stepping into this world, and, and the demons are jumping out. Some followers of Jesus read accounts like this of Jesus uh, performing these exorcisms, and they try and, and, and form their own sort of exorcism ministry. You might hear the terms, depending on the, travel, the circles you travel in, sometimes people refer to this as an ekbalistic ministry. Um, ek out of, ballistic to throw, ek ballistic ministry, I'm throwing out the demons. And, and they would scour stories like this for help. The problem with that, there's two problems actually with that approach. One, I don't think there's enough details in the exorcism stories in the Gospels to help us form a ministry on the basis of it. And the second problem is, I don't think that's why the stories are told. This is, this is here to teach us about Jesus, not about exorcism. For example, if, if you were to think about it this way, if you were to pick up a biography of Eric Little, you know the story of Eric Little, the Scotsman who ran in the Olympics and I then became a missionary to China, um, you would probably be inspired by that book. I'm sure his life story is inspiring. His commitment to the Lord Jesus would, would move you. But it is not going to provide you with comprehensive training to win races. It's not a book about winning races. You might, you might read it and pick up a point or two and, and might decide to take up jogging, but you are not going to become an Olympic athlete by reading Eric Little's biography. That's not the point. The point is to tell you about his life. And here the story, this account is given to teach us about the Lord Jesus, and it teaches us about his might. We'll come back to that in a minute. I have other questions about this passage. Why did the demons ask Jesus' permission to go into the pigs? Um, I am interested in my life and having bacon inside of my body. I don't have an interest in being inside of bacon. So what, why, and why did he give them permission? To show this apparent kindness to these demons... Knowing what would happen to them, why did he do that? I don't know that. What happened to the pigs, sorry, what happened to the demons after the pigs drowned in the lake? Where did they go? Hmm. I don't know that answer. Here's an important reminder as we read the Gospels. 
The goal of reading the Gospels is not to try to find the answers to all of our questions. The goal is to find what the Gospel writers want us to know. What does the Holy Spirit, working through the Apostle Matthew, want us to know about the Lord Jesus? He gives us every detail that we need to know in order to get the point. And what's the point? The point of this story is to tell us about Jesus' might over the forces of evil. Jesus' might over the forces of evil. You can see that in a number of the details that Matthew does include. First, he highlights the location. Jesus goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He leaves the Jewish region and goes to a Gentile area, and he lands near some tombs and some pigs. Jesus is in hostile territory in a spiritually unclean place, and that does not affect his power at all. Jesus is in hostile territory. He's not at his home base. He doesn't have any of the cultural uh, um, uh, elements of support around him, or there's nobody who prays around him. He, he is in hostile territory, and he is mighty. It doesn't matter where on the planet you are, the Lord Jesus reigns. Then... Uh, you see here the demons come and they talk to him. What do you want with us, son of God? They name him. It's interesting in the, the, the account previous to this where Jesus had calmed the seas, the disciples, the last question they ask is, who is this guy who controls the winds and the waves? This is astounding. Who is this? And then the demons come along in the next account and they say, we'll tell you who he is. He's the son of God. They name him. It seems like they name him in part. They may have named him, rather, uh, in an effort to control him. There is a belief among spiritists or among those who work with um, in this realm that, or, that, uh, that to name the demon or to name a spiritual force is to have power over it. Do you remember the story, the fairy tale of uh, Rumpelstiltskin? Rumpelstiltskin uh, kept that young lady in the tower and she could be free if she knew his name, if she could discover his name. And here come the demons trying to exercise this power over Jesus. We're going to name you, and it, it, it doesn't work. They are uh, uh, powerful. They're violent. No one else can control them. Uh, it's dangerous to be near them except for the Lord Jesus who comes. He has no problems being in their presence. This is about his might. They said to him, um, why have you come before the appointed time? The appointed time. They're in a sense saying to Jesus, oh, Jesus, you're early. You're not supposed to be here yet. You're early. You know what? They know that there is a day that is coming that, that, that with the Lord Jesus will be responsible for disciplining them, for punishing them. And what they're confused about is that he's early. This is a story about his might. They, they may be referring to uh, something that Jesus uh, speaks about in Matthew 25. Matthew 25, Jesus gives a parable of the end of the age, and here's what he says. Uh, then he will say to those on his left, he's speaking of himself, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the, the devil and his angels. There is, it's prepared, it is chiefly for Satan and his minions, and uh, that day, though, is, is coming, and these demons are saying, why are you early? Why are you early? We, we know, we know what our end is, but you're early. His might. Then they ask him to go in these pigs, these pigs. Um, and Jesus answers them with one word, go. 
He doesn't have a formula. He doesn't cast them out of these men with an incantation. He doesn't have to do any special motions, special movements. He doesn't have to anoint or do anything like that. Just go. Sure, go. It reminds me of, uh, of one of the verses of a mighty fortress is our God, right? And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. One little word, Jesus says, go and they go. This is good news. This is good news about the might of the Lord Jesus over evil spiritual forces. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. These evil spiritual forces lie, they manipulate, they deceive, they accuse, but the Lord Jesus is mighty, he's mighty to save. Now, that's a power that frightens these villagers. Um, the, the pig herders go into town. They come back with the, the villagers. And verse 34 says, The whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Here's a group of people who are not malleable. They plead. That word plead is actually the same word that's used to describe the demons and how they ask Jesus in verse 31. The demons beg and the people plead. Same word in, in the original language. That what the demons do, what the people do and the demons do there, it's overlap between them. Um, uh, the, the, almost as if the townspeople have a devilish sort of character. They're foolish and they're asking Jesus to leave. Why do they ask him to leave? Well, some people think it's because... They're upset about their pigs and, and indict these people because they care more apparently about the pigs than they do about these two men who've been set free from the demons. Pigs over people, sows over sons, that's their motto, right? Except I, I don't want to be too hard on them because think about their own economic viability. If you were a farmer and you lost your entire herd, what would you be thinking about? How am I going to feed my family? How am I going to pay my taxes? What am I going to do in order to survive? All these pigs are gone. They are frightened of the Lord Jesus. And this account reminds us that Jesus turns the world upside down. And malleable people, malleable people know it and anticipate it. Uh, Jesus is making the world right. If you're one of his followers, you have, have turned, you have been, uh, you, you were oriented away from him, and he, uh, you have turned to him, and he is in the process of turning your world right side up. It was upside down. He's turning it right side up, and that is a chaotic process. Jesus does that in his making the world right. He, he takes farmers from Lancaster County and sends them thousands of miles away to share the gospel in an unreached people group on a flat top of a mountain. Jesus knee to him. Let's move on. Let's talk about the paralyzed man, shall we? Next. I have questions about this scene too. In the other gospels, this is the guy that gets lowered down through the roof 
in front of Jesus. That detail is not in Matthew, but it's in Mark and in Luke. Um, and the first words, this is my chief question about this, uh, this passage. The, the, chief, the first words that Jesus says to this man is, take heart, or, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, why, why did Jesus start there? That's not the most obvious problem that this man has, is it? I mean, he's been lowered in his, in his mat. He's paralyzed his spiritual problems. Why is that? Again, Matthew doesn't give us details. I wonder if there was a conversation, a little bit of a conversation that took place before Jesus uttered these words. Um, he sees, the text says, he sees the friends and their faith and then he says to the man, take heart, your sins are forgiven. Maybe he said something like this. Wow, you, you've got some, some friends who really care about you, don't they? I mean, they, they brought you here and laying there, hanging from these ropes, presumably still says, yeah, I don't deserve any of their kindness at all. I don't, I don't deserve it at all. I don't deserve anyone to be this, this gracious to me and work this hard for me. I'll, I'll speculate a little further for just a minute. Uh, so he's, Jesus calls him son, which means he's probably younger than Jesus. Here's a group of five young guys. And I read this story and I think, what stupid thing did these five young guys do? Right? They were out somewhere in a barn or they were out somewhere near a creek and one of them said, watch this, right? And something stupid happened and one of them got hurt. One of them got hurt, and the other four bring him to Jesus to help him. And, and Jesus says, you've got four friends who really care about you. And he says, I know, but this is all my fault. This is all my, you wouldn't believe the stupid thing that I did that got me in this situation. I asked them to leave me alone and just let me die. Instead, they brought me, and I, my life, I'm just, a, this is a mess. Matthew doesn't record any of that. I'm totally speculating. But can you see how that sort of conversation, or at least that sort of scenario, might lead to Jesus beginning by saying, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. I read this, and it reminds me of uh, something that Pastor Scott and I read in a book by Harold Sankbill. Uh, we read a book called The Care of Souls over the summer, and it was... Uh, uh, in the spring and the summer. It was a useful uh, a book, and I, I spoke about it a little bit. It's, it's about um, uh, providing pastoral care. Harold Sankville is a Lutheran, and in his particular branch of the Lutheran church, they practice uh, confession, where you would sit down with your pastor and confess your sins, and your pastor would have the responsibility to read from Scripture and assure you of forgiveness. And he told several stories of how this has happened in his life and what the fruit of it has been. And as he would, was, was describing these scenes, I thought to myself, you know, there's something beautiful about that, something whole about that, having someone say to you, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. God forgives you. The Apostle James tells us to confess our sins one to another. I don't think he has in mind that we're supposed to, chiefly, that we're supposed to confess our sins to one another for accountability purposes. That's what happens sometimes. So some guys want to get together. They want to have uh, accountability as they pursue sexual purity. And so on Friday at lunch, they're going to meet together. And, and I, if I, uh, I got to 
talk to the guys on Friday about my pursuit of sexual purity, and I don't want to have to confess my sins to them, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work hard this week to be accountable to pursue sexual purity so I don't have to confess my sin. That's not what James is talking about. I think James has in mind, confess your sins to one another so that we will have the joy and opportunity to encourage one another by saying to one another, your sins are forgiven. If we were more liturgical in our worship, we might have an order of service in which every week there would be a moment of assurance of pardon. It would say it in our, uh, our bulletin. It would say assurance of pardon, and somebody would read from the scriptures this good word. If you are here and you're a follower of Jesus, I have good news to remind you of. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you uh, your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. What a, what, a, what a service that is. What a, a healing balm to hear that from someone's lips. God forgives you. Healthy families uh, cultivate in their families confession and repentance and forgiveness. You're probably doing this with your little children or you're working at it in your house, cultivating confession, repentance, and forgiveness. It starts poorly, right? You bring your preschool children next to each other that have been fighting, and you got to hold them real tight because they're going to run away. And you hold them, and you say, you say you're sorry. I'm sorry. You say I forgive you. I forgive you. And it's a beautiful moment, right? Just have grace and reconciliation and, and peace. And You're on the right track. Okay? Keep at that. Healthy families cultivate confession, repentance, and forgiveness. Teach them... Teach them so they don't fall into the trap that we all often fall into when we're older and someone apologizes to us. They, they say, I am sorry that I said that. I'm sorry that I did that. I'm sorry that I forgot this. I'm sorry that they'll apologize. And our, our response, your most common response is not, I forgive you. Your most common response, I bet, is, it's okay. Right? It's okay. It's okay. No, it's not okay. That is not a Christian answer to a confession of sin. Say to them, I forgive you. And then do it. Don't, don't uh, keep it in your back pocket to bring up later. Don't wallow in bitterness. Don't uh, use this incident as the defining factor of your relationship with that person. Forgive them. And if you're struggling with it, you should confess that. I know, I, I know that I should forgive you, and I'm working on it, and I'm trying. But I, I know that's the issue, and, and that's the issue that I want to deal with, forgiveness. I'm not going to say it's okay. I forgive you. We, we announce forgiveness in Jesus' name. Let's uh, pronounce it in your house, too. Huh? There's probably someone in your life who needs to hear these good words. Take heart. Art, your sins are for. Now, an issue here in this passage is over Jesus' authority to uh, forgive. Does he have the authority to do this? And there's some not very malleable people who have questions about that, who, who want to take issue with his right to um, uh, uh, forgive sins. So the teachers of the law say, well, he's blaspheming, he's blaspheming. And Jesus gives them a little logic puzzle. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk? 
Which one is easier to say? It is easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no way to verify if that's happened or not. There's no, no way to prove whether or not the sins have been forgiven. It's a lot harder to say, get up and walk, because if, if, if your words have no power at all, it will be immediately evident. But Jesus says, so you, that you know that I have the power to, with my words, forgive sin, I will, with my words, make this paralyzed man get up and walk. Now, the um, teachers of the law, by all accounts, see this miracle, and they don't seem to wrestle with the implications of it. The question is, Will you wrestle with the implications of it? Malleable people take Jesus at his word and receive his forgiveness. It's a forgiveness that Jesus pronounces in Matthew 9, and he purchases for us at the end of the book when he dies in our place on the cross for our sins and rises again and gives forgiveness to all who will turn and trust in him. Malleable people receive this forgiveness in full, even as we sometimes struggle to believe it. We sing songs about this to each other to try to encourage each other. Forgiveness is rich, it's free. We sing these songs over and over again. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Arise, my soul, arise, shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in thy defense appears. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there's flowing a crimson tide. Whiter than snow you may be today. We sing these songs over and over again to celebrate and remember forgiveness that's rich and free for all who will receive it through the Lord Jesus. That is the sign of a heart that is soft before the might of the Lord Jesus. Frederick Bruner says it's interesting in this passage, he sees this image for what it means to follow Jesus. He, this man is forgiven for his sins, and then he gets up and walks. On the basis of being forgiven by the Lord Jesus, we follow him. So it's essential. Get this, get this. The Lord Jesus pronounces and has purchased forgiveness for his people. Now, if you struggle with this, Matthew finishes this uh, account by telling us his biography here of how he became a follower of Jesus. Matthew's sitting at a tax collector's booth, and Jesus comes along and says, follow me. Was there any other conversation before this? Probably. That's not Matthew's point, though. His point is uh, people, when Jesus speaks, you listen to Jesus. Demons listen to Jesus. Paralyzed people get up and listen to Jesus. Text collectors, get up and listen to Jesus. Do you listen to Jesus? That, that's what he's getting at. And then Matthew throws a party, a dinner party with some real, now if I were a teacher, a Pharisee of the law, this is what I would say. Matthew throws a party for some real lowlifes, tax collectors, and sinners. Ugh. They complain, Jesus should know better than to hang out with those sort of people. If he's really from God, he should know better. If he was really from God, he would hang out with good people like us. <laughs> and then Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. 
Now, Jesus is not dividing the world into people who don't need saving and people who do need saving. He's not dividing the world into healthy people and sick people, uh, uh, righteous people and sinners. And it's, it's, That's not what he's doing. What he's trying to do is he's trying to correct their understanding of his mission. Why have I come for sinners? I have come for sick people. I've come to find lost people and bring them home. And if you're stamped with his image, that's what you do too. You find lost people and bring them home, sick people and help them find health in the Lord Jesus, sinners to the righteous one who is our Savior. Russell Moore was writing about this a little bit, um, something similar kind of, but look what he says. The next Billy Graham might be drunk right now. The next Jonathan Edwards might be the man driving in front of you with a Darwin fish bumper decal. The next Charles Wesley might currently be a misogynistic, profanity-spewing hip-hop artist. The next Charles Spurgeon might be managing an abortion clinic today. The next Mother Teresa might be a heroin-addicted porn star this week. The next Augustine of Hippo might be a sexually promiscuous cult member right now, just like, come to think of it, the first Augustine of Hippo was. But the Spirit of God can turn all that around, and he seems to delight to do so. That is a wonderful sentence. The Holy Spirit seems to delight to take tax collectors and sinners and make them apostles. Now he keeps going. The new birth doesn't just transform lives, creating repentance and faith. It also provides new leadership to the church and fulfills Jesus' promise to gift his church with everything needed for her onward march through space and time. So here's the invitation from Matthew chapter 8. Throw a party. Throw a party. Who are you going to invite to party? The witty, the good-looking, the wealthy, the established, the cultured, the educated, good people. People whose children know how to act in your house so nothing gets broken. Who, who are respectful. And it will be a perfect feast fit for Pharisees. Or you can have another party, a dinner party, and invite the awkward and the dull, those who, who, whose children don't know which fork to use and they don't care, those who come with all of their brokenness oozing out. You might have to put some ashtrays around your house. Somebody might get in a fight and the cops might come. There might be a, a different sort of mess in your house than, than you thought you were going to have. Which party, which party did the Lord Jesus come to earth to attend? The malleable, those who are stamped by Jesus, no. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you for this reminder of the great triumph of the Lord Jesus over spiritual forces of wickedness, unseen evil spirits, and we're grateful to you for his triumph over the self-righteous attitude that it is easy for, that it's easy for us to cultivate and bear. And we are most especially here as we finish even thankful to you for his triumph over our sin. 
Lord, I pray that you would grant us tender hearts before you in your might, that we would be in awe of you and that we would bend the knee to you, the mighty one. We give you thanks and we pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus saying, amen.